everybody. Today, I have Bob Veers here. We're going to be talking about the future of the industry and the fee model. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Great to have you back again. So before we get started, tell the audience who you are and what you do for those that may not know you. Well, I'm a blundering fool who's trying to figure out what's going on and largely failing, I think is the best description I can give. But, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to advisors and I ask them what they're doing and they tell me and then I try and if, if it's working, if what they're doing is working and I try and bring it back to my audience and tell them, you know, where the I think the future is what's working. And if advisors are trying something different and new and better, then that's what I report on. So I'm sort of the out of the box voice in your, your head, you know, we're, we're herd animals and I try and pull us away from the herd and show that there are other things than what everybody else is doing that might be beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. And so you publish this in, it's got inside information. Yeah, it's called inside information. It's a newsletter, which is an ancient form of, you know, it's sort of like cuneiform writing, you know, it's an ancient form of communication. Uh, Bob, you and I have in common that we both follow Stoic philosophy, but so let's first for the audience define Stoicism, Stoic philosophy. How would you define it? The idea behind Buddhism and Stoicism, the the place where they interact or they they overlap, I should say, is is kind of where I live, with the idea being that there's a meta-awareness that each of us has that sits on top of our physical selves and our physical mind. And so the physical mind encounters things that happen in the world and feels anger or or sadness or joy or happiness or the whole spectrum. And the meta you, if that makes sense, your meta awareness sits above that and enjoys the full spectrum. It's great that I can feel sadness. It's great that I can feel anger. It's great that I can feel joy and happiness that whole spectrum of of emotion is available to me. And what the the Stoic would say is that that's the definition of equanimity. That's the definition of not being entangled in the circumstances that you're affected by, that that they're impacting you. And the Buddhist would say that that's the first step toward nirvana, that being able to disconnect from the, 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 interaction with the world in a, on a purely physical level is the first step toward being something beyond that. The, the Stoics would say that this is the goal, what, what I'm, I'm talking about. And I'm not sure I'm there yet, but that, that's the way I, that's what I aspire to anyway. Yeah. I mean, what, what inspires me with Stoicism is the four virtues, wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance or moderation. I don't have any of those. No. I mean, I I think I struggle with the moderation one a little bit at times, but um, what I like about it is that it gives me a useful way of operating in business and in life because there's a focus on logic. And, and in a way when you're, because it seems like in society, one thing we've kind of lost is this, is this focus on the four virtues on virtues like this. And it's about, satisfaction and and emotion right and and how you feel about certain things but what i think stoicism does is it focuses on on the inner and less on on the outer and it helps you to kind of not be subservient to what you desire fair enough so 
I, I, that for me, that's, that's why it's useful. Let's talk about the industry a little bit, Bob. What, what do you think is the greatest source of confusion amongst the public when it comes to the industry? Uh, the revenue model and the value proposition are, and, you know, I, I think that was deliberate as an attempt by real professionals. And I think there are real professionals. I don't think we are a profession, but I think there are real professionals out there who are practicing. But, you know, the real professionals are trying to separate themselves from the sales people. And so they created something called financial planning. And then the salespeople adopted that and they created needs-oriented selling, which basically means we create a financial plan and it just happens to recommend that you need a whole bunch of life insurance. And so then the, the, the profession created the fee-only model. And then the, 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 the wirehouses and broker-dealers created the fee-based model, which is, you know, we, we have... We take fees occasionally, but, you know, we're mostly commissioned. But, you know, the fact that there are fees involved means we can talk, talk as if we're fee only. And then fiduciary. And fiduciary seemed like a pretty good distinction. And then suddenly there was the, um, the best interest. And the SEC went along with the wirehouses. Well, the SEC basically does whatever the wirehouses tell them to do. So now we're talking about what is the value proposition and what is the, 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 the proper revenue model for financial planners? And I think AUM, the asset or management model, is ideally suited to asset gathering, which is what the wirehouses do. So what's the next high ground? Where, where do real professionals go to change their, and, and you've talked about it uh, rather extensively in your columns, the revenue model needs to be something other than, you know, how much how much are you going to charge me? And the answer is, I'm not sure. How much have you got? We've got to move away from that. And the, the value proposition needs to move away from, I'm managing your assets, which is an, which is an easy sell, but is really an accommodation, I think, now. It's, it's, it's commoditized. Everybody can create their own portfolios. Needs to move to what you call an advice-only model, which I think is um, re- requires us to make some adjustments to the way the business model as well. So if we can if we can create a, 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 revenue, a revenue model that focuses on advice, and if we can create a value proposition, which is more or less purely advice with services attached, I think that would clarify who is a professional and who's not. I agree with so many of these points, but let's just dig in a little bit deeper. The issue is in the public's eyes, it, there's no easy way, Bob, to distinguish between a real planner and, like you said, someone who is going to give you the plan for free because it recommends invest your cash and buy some whole life insurance. Because- or whatever. I mean, it, it, there's a number of kinds of bad advice they could lead to. That's right. But how do I know? Like if I'm, I, I mean, let's say I have a million dollars and I'm out there and I'm going to interview the local firms in, I mean, I live in Manhattan, right? So I go and I do an internet search or I get referrals and I talk to five different shops. I feel like all of them say on their website, financial planning is the basis of what we do. 
and more and more than that, you know, we put our customers' interests first, and we, you know, I mean, there's a there's a sea of sameness out there in, in the marketing messages. Well, I think that the solution is going to have to be have to follow. The big change in the profession was that we can work remotely with people now. And that means you can get on Zoom like we're doing right now and talk to an advisor and the advisor could be on the other side of the Mississippi. So you've confined your search to Manhattan. I would imagine that more and more clients in the future are going to be searching nationally for their advisor. And they're going to be searching not for somebody who says, you know, we manage your portfolio and we put your interests first and we do comprehensive financial planning. They're going to be looking for somebody who works with their specific kind of person. So for you, you know, it might be, you know, I work with writers, you know, sometimes that's a feast or famine business. And so we have to, we have to do certain other things and you work for yourself. You're a small business person and you can create your own defined benefit plan unless you have employees, in which case you can, there are other things you can do. And so you would be looking nationally for somebody who works with independent writers and publishers about who, who have certain particular challenges that the advisor addresses right there on the screen. And that, that's what I think most advisors are going to have to do and understand what that does. That means that as an advisor, you know the challenges that person faces when they walk in the door in your, your Zoom meeting. You know at a deep level their idioms, their, their jokes, their inside jokes, their, and their financial challenges. Your advice can be far more valuable than the general practitioner who will do a retirement needs analysis using e-money. How do we move planning to be central? I think it has to be that consumers are going to have to be demanding it and to and to be shunning advisors that say I'm going to I'm going to you know I'm interested in your investments, roll over your investments to me and then we'll talk about the plan. Or I'm not going to tell you about social security, I'm not going to advise you about should you buy that house or not unless I'm managing your money. Until consumers learn, and maybe it's just educational that advisors need to be like people like me and advisors, that has to be the shift is that the public has to learn to choose. So how do we get them to choose? Well, you know, whenever I try and assess these trends, these major ethical trends that go on in the profession, and I've, I've seen several of them. I was the first person to write about that we're moving from commissions to fees. And boy, I got a lot of hate mail from that. Um, and, and it was actually male back then, but, you know, and, and, and then the life planning movement, I was one of the early people to say, this is, this is new and different and better. And, and so what I've learned is that these ethical changes in the profession require three or four different evolutionary shifts before it to come together before it really happens. And so evolu evolutionary shift, number one is the internet, the zoom meetings, the remote client relationships where somebody can work with somebody on the other side of the Mississippi. That's number one. Number two is advisors responding to that by specializing. I don't call it a niche. I say a specialization. And that specialization, when their, their website talks to you personally, that means they're not talking to everybody else. And so whoever comes to somebody's website and they say, we serve dentists coming out of residency who are just starting their business, you know, if I'm a 
an electrician, I know that that's probably not the advisor for me. But then someone says, we serve electricians who have contracts with, you know, apartment complex, whatever, you know, it's, there, there are a million specializations you can have. So that's the second one is when we start specializing. And of course, your value becomes a lot more, a lot, you have a lot higher value when you know the particular challenges of a particular niche. And the third, and what you were talking about earlier, was you know the, the revenue model. When somebody charges fees for advice, every other profession charges fees for advice. Um, you go to a doctor and you expect to pay a certain fee. You're not going to pay a, a percentage of whatever they recommend in, in the way of surgery or, or medicines. And, and that's a that's ground that I don't think the, the brokerage firms and the sales agendas are going to be able to follow. They're not going to be able to say, we only charge by the hour and we're going to sell you something. That's that's probably not going to be an effective way for them to to pursue the real professionals. So you've got all these different threads coming together all at once, and they're going to all have to come together. I'm not optimistic that the consumer is gonna drive these changes. But I do think that advisors who create these specializations and create a more user-friendly model are going to be more likely to attract more people. And as they become more successful, they'll outcompete people. Um, we wrote a white paper about this not long ago about the, the um, advisory firm of the future. And one of the things we said was that what's gonna happen is you're gonna have specialized advisors recommending, you know, that, that electrician comes to somebody who works with dentists coming at a residency and that advisor says, you know, I don't work with people like you, but I know someone who works exactly with people like you. And so you get a lot of cross referrals among people who specialize, who know each other, who get to know each other. And that becomes a true fiduciary model where you know who you work with and who you don't. And if you don't work with that person, you refer them out and, and try and find the very best home for them, if that makes sense. 100. And I don't think the brokerage firms are going to do that. Yeah, that's right. Like that is, that is professionalism. Yeah. 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 A, a, a knee doctor doesn't refer, doesn't take on somebody who has a, a sinus problem. And, and yes, so I've also had John Luskin, who's an hourly planner on the show, and Cody Garrett, who's advice only, and he does it on a three-month project basis for DIY investors mostly. And those guys get, I believe, most of their business, well, probably not Cody, but John Luskin gets a ton of business from other advisors mm -hmm. because he just, they get people who say, I'm a, you know, a tech employee with stock options. I want someone to teach me about my stock options, but I don't want you to manage my money and I'll pay you for your time and your advice. And maybe mm -hmm. I'll come back in a year or so if I get married or sell my house or whatever. And it's really worked quite brilliantly for him, but you never see that. I mean, you have financial advisors that won't even connect with other financial advisors on social media because they are so worried about the cutthroat competition and other people coming in and stealing their clients or like, you know, I have these like chat rooms, you know, these chat groups, these groups on LinkedIn for like advisors and they won't go in there and they won't post anything because they're worried. Like, what if someone's going to copy my ideas? It's different. 
It's really well. It, it, it yes, the the general practitioner advisor um, who purely manages assets is is not going to survive the next generation of clients, hmm. and 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 so and they know that, and they're hanging on for dear life as best they can because that's you know what they offer. A lot of those people they're, they're going to retire, and their clients are going to going to die off, and and they'll sell the firm probably for pennies on the dollar when their clients start dying off and, and to a larger roll-up firm. So, you know, but, you know, the other, the other piece of this is I talk to younger people about what they want from a financial advisor. And I ask them, do you want somebody to manage your assets? And they know that nobody can beat the market. And so they don't see that as a primary value from their advisor. Um, but they do wonder, you know, what am I going to do how, how do I set up a, a defined benefit plan or, or how much can I contribute to, to different plans? And, and what about my mortgage? And can you improve my relationship with, with a banker? And, and all these other issues, you know, what can, are my insurances um, working together or, or am I overpaying for this or that? And you ask them, you know, would you pay somebody to manage your assets? And they laugh at me. And, and the laughing at me response suggests that somebody who, who tries to market to them as an asset manager is probably going to fail. So, uh, you know, and, and last time I checked, the younger, younger people are the financial planning clients of the future. So I think they're, the whole AUM model, which I wrote about originally and thought that was a, it was a really great bridge to being fee only, is going to age out. I think the baby boomers are the last generation that's going to be willing to pay for asset management. Asset management is going to become, I think, a convenience. It's something, you know, you pay somebody for your advice, for their advice, and as a convenience, they will set up an account, you know, at one of the discount brokerage firms and manage it and do rebalancing. You know, the, I think asset management is going to become an accommodation. You know, the, the advisor, you can rebalance your own portfolio, you can create a a decent asset mix, you can harvest tax losses, but the advisor has better tools for that. It's kind of like painting your house. You know, the, the professional house painter has much better tools and can do it more efficiently and probably do it better than you can. And so, you know, it's something that financial planners will do for their clients, but they'll do it as an ancillary part of the relationship, not as the primary value proposition, if that makes sense. So what does all of this mean, though, for the fee model of the future, if it's not going to be AUM. I, I believe that's right. So what I, you know, I, I did a survey not long ago, two years ago, and I'm going to do another one this fall and ask my readers, you know, what are you doing? And, and you know, 1,000, 1,200 people, I think, answered the survey, a statistically significant number. And most of them more than two thirds of them are experimenting with some other model. Most of the people who are experimenting are flat fee monthly. I mean, flat fee quarterly, I apologize. Um, but some are you know, doing subscriptions monthly and some are doing hourly. And what's gonna happen is it won't really matter what the model is so long. And I think there, there will be a number of models where you know some people prefer to pay quarterly for you know ongoing advice some will prefer to pay hourly and there'll be a, an adaptation to your particular specialty but the important thing is that all professions 
pay for it, have their clients pay for advice. And I think that's what financial planning is, is going to inevitably evolve to is, you know, people pay for advice as they receive it on an ongoing basis or on an hourly basis. Um, it will not be, you know, my friend, Lynn Hopewell, he, he passed away years ago, but he was a thought leader for many years. He said that, you know, managing client assets, you make money while you sleep. I don't think any profession makes money while they sleep. They have to make money while they're delivering value. Well, like you were saying, with the advent of the internet and people feeling like there are better options, they won't just be working with the person that's going to be thrusting their money into some fund and and having it earn fees just without an, an accompaniment of sizable value. They won't put up with that. And you're right. I think the younger generations are not going to put up with that. A lot of advisors say that the younger generations have no money and they're broke and they only want to work with the people who do have a lot of money, et cetera. But I, I think that's a myth. And I have seen a lot of clients come in for certain advisors I work with who, who are younger and who sold a company or who have just been great savers and, and they're very attractive prospects to the advisor without being that typical five to 10 years from retirement type of ideal. Well, you have to match the effort with the fees you charge. You know, if somebody comes to you and really all they need is for you to set up their IRA and, and to, you know, and maybe, maybe start putting money into a 529 plan because their kids are five years old and they know it's going to break the bank at some point when they go to college. If that's all they're doing, you can afford to charge them less and still make the same percentage profit that you would make on somebody who's a small business owner and has a lot of complexity and you're charging $20,000 a year. So really what you're doing is you're matching the time and energy you're spending with what you're charging appropriately. And a younger client who, who is fairly simple can be just as profitable or even more so than the, the more complicated client. A lot of the advisors are hesitant to want to experiment with the new fee models. I know a lot of them have, but then there's also hesitation because there are all kinds of reasons they say, like, they'll say, well, I'm not set up to do, I mean, hourly is the one that people tend to oppose the most. You know, I'm not set up to do it. It's too much administrative burden on me. How am I going to get the client to come back? I'm going to be broke. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I've seen a lot of advisors adopt flat fee in addition to charging AUM. Mm -hmm. But then they say, well, it's flat fee based on complexity, and which they have to say, because if you have, they feel they have to say, because if you have clients that you're making $10,000, $20,000 off of based on AUM fees, and then you come in and you say, Okay, so from now on, I'm offering a flat fee of $8,000 a year. Who's up for taking it? You're going to get a lot of people that are going to default over just because it's a lower fee. And so, I mean, how do you explain to your customer base? How do you explain to your clients? Well, you could work with me on a flat fee basis and pay much less for the same value. Or you could just pay me $20,000 as you always have. So well, I'm smiling because I actually have an answer to that question. Um, I, I have 
done some consulting with advisory firms and then kind of an experiment. I'm probably the world's worst consultant. So, you know, anybody listening to this, you know, if you, if you're looking for a consultant, you should probably look elsewhere. But, you know, what I said was, all right, let's try an experiment. Let's, let's create a spreadsheet and let's put in all of your clients' names and then how much you're making or how much you're, you're receiving from them, from your asset under management activities on a yearly basis. And then, Estimate how much time you're spending with each client and bill that, multiply that by some appropriate amount, you know, $400 an hour, let's say. It's, it's a, 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 I think $350 an hour was the average, what, what advisors thought they were worth an hour, whatever, whatever you think you're worth an hour. And then whatever your associates are, whatever time your associates are spending, multiply that by maybe $175 or $200 an hour. And then take all of your administrative fee costs, I'm sorry, your, your, your overhead and divide that by your number of clients. And each one of these goes into a different cell along the row. And then you, you add up all the internal costs, which is basically what these things are, and you subtract what they're paying you from your internal costs. And then you sort based on whether that's positive or negative. And so we've done that a few times and it's really interesting what comes out. Typically, an advisor will discover that two or three people are paying wildly more than the time and energy that they're spending on them. And they may not be the, the people that are mostly are, are the, the most lucrative clients and maybe the clients that they just can't ever get a hold of. And they're paying a quarterly fee, but the advisory firm is not really incurring any internal expenses there. And there are about 80% of the clients are not profitable. And so when I talk to them about this, I say, what does this tell you? And what it tells me is that every client should be at least marginally profitable. So those clients at the bottom of that list who are very unprofitable, you talk to them first. You say, we're going to go to a quarterly fee model. And we feel like you know, the, the value we're delivering is worth what we're what we're proposing a charge and if they leave that's an unprofitable client that leaves and and so it's not such a terrible thing to happen and you move your way up the list and most people what, what we've discovered when we've done this most people say yeah yeah you're right i've been kind of waiting for you to tell me that you know my two hundred thousand dollar ira is is not really paying you as as much as you know the, the advice you're giving me and then you come up toward the top to those wildly profitable clients and you you, then you have a decision. Those people are overpaying you for the time and energy you're spending. Are they getting enough value to justify how much they're, they're paying you or not? And if they're not, they're probably candidates for leaving. If they're not paying attention, if they're not coming in for quarterly meetings, if they're not talking to you on a regular basis, they may be talking to another advisor. And so you may need to go back to them and say, um, we think that a quarterly fee would be more appropriate. And guess what? We're going to charge you less going forward. And that may conserve that client relationship. So you, it could conceivably be a win all up and down the, the list. But when you say, you know, my gosh, this is going to be make us unprofitable. It's really not because it's only really for most firms, it's only a few clients where you have that decrease in fees. Most clients, it's going to be an increase in fees. Mm. In my experience, what I've seen, yeah. and I would invite anybody listening to this, try that, try that spreadsheet 
experiment and see what you get. And, and I think you'll be surprised what you get. Any kind of an outsized profit margin is just an opportunity for the competitor. That's right. That's right. right. It's, it really yeah. is a source of vulnerability, although it's so hard to it's so hard to be objective. See, this is where the stoicism comes in, right? It's so hard to be logical about it when you think about, well, this is my best client in terms of revenue, but um, it's it it really is a defensive measure. And increasingly, I think a lot fewer people are going to be delegators. A lot fewer people are going to say, you just do it for me and then I'm not going to be involved. I think in the future, people are going to be a lot more involved. The, the, the whole population is becoming more financially aware gradually, admittedly, but, um, you know, and, and I think we're all at heart do-it-yourselfers in the sense that we want to participate and we want to make decisions and we want to feel in control but we do want someone there who can tell us what a professional thinks about this and what a professional knows and has professional tools to do evaluation. You know, there's always that hesitation when, when there's a, an idea. And I mean, I think it's for good cause because I, I mean, to be honest with you, like, I, Bob, I don't know if a lot of financial advisors could survive in an hourly model, in a flat fee model. I don't think a lot of them would be able to because like some of them just spend money and, and they make bad hiring decisions and they want the big office and they want the overhead because they think their clients want it. Or they you know, are such a miserable mess administratively that they'd never be able to track their time. Well, so now, now you're, you're introducing a whole different issue. And I, I, a lot of what I write about is practice management issues. Um, there are a lot of people who were early adopters of the asset under management model who made a lot of money and, and it was easy money early on. And I think in the future, margins are going to be a little tighter, not necessarily because people will be less inclined to pay for advice, but because it'll be a little more labor intensive to provide that advice the way you provide it. Um, so. Yeah, the, the, the AUM model was infinitely leverageable and, and, and kind of an easy business to run. So there are a lot of people my age who are not necessarily great business managers, not very, not, um, but their, their successors are, I think, much more sophisticated. And I, I wish people my age would kind of get out of the way and let their successors run their business. Tell their successors, create the business that you want to inherit from me that you want to buy into, that you want to own someday, that, that you want to run. So that's a whole separate issue. But I think there is a, a, a lack of practice management evolution going on right now because people my age are standing in the way. They're saying, I don't want to make any changes until I retire 12 years in the future. You know, that's not the way a profession evolves. Well, succession is an entirely different discussion. But OK, so I'm going to wrap here. Bob, what would you say are the three most important things that you'd like the listeners to take away from the show today? Well, the first is, I think it's really important to start creating a specialty. And the way to do that, I mean, there, there, are, there are now programs that'll help you do that. Um, there's a program called Catchlight that Fidelity produces that you can, you can input just two pieces of client data and they will tell you what your clients have in common. 
and, and different nodes, if you will, of, of things they have in common. But you can do that yourself. You can look at your clients and you can say, you know, I have a number of people who are um, own horse farms, you know, and, and, and I love horses. And that can become a specialty. It doesn't mean you have to leave behind everybody else. In fact, what you should do is when you, you I think you should orient your website toward a specialty that you feel attracted to. And then reassure all of your existing clients that you don't want to leave them behind. You're working with them so that you continue with, with, with them, number one. Number two, I think the, the whole asset under management model has been commoditized. I think you know, we, we know now that pretty much anybody can go to a number of online websites and, and they'll manage your assets. And there are a lot of easy ways to create a, an efficient portfolio. And, and so, you know, I think asset under management cannot become the value proposition. It cannot continue to be the value proposition. Um, the value proposition needs to be advice, which is sort of the, which is a piece of what we were just talking about with, with the specialty. And the third is that I don't think advisors can continue to market only to their immediate vicinity. You need to market to the country. You need to market to everybody. And to do that, you need to be, you have a presence on social media and you need to be generous with what you give away to the specialty that you've created. You need to give away information. You need to talk to them specifically on social media. Um, social media is, is, is really the vector for every, every person in America to, to potentially connect with you. And people will find you that way. You know, they'll, they'll look for somebody who's talking about, you know, doctors coming out of residency and looking at their first uh, office, creating an office or working to um, create an arrangement with a local hospital or whatever. So, you know, you've, you've got the value proposition, you've got the revenue model, you've got the outreach process. Um, you, you, it's all got to come together in, you, you've got to bring several threads together in order to be the, the business, the future, if that makes sense. I think it makes total sense. But I think executing on that is going to be one hell of a ride for an advisor well, for, to do. For the, the older, older advisors who resist change, yeah, that's, that's going to be tough. But, you know, when I, when I give my presentations, one of the things, I, I, one of the tricks I play on the audience, I say, how many of you would like to go back to where you were 15 years ago, personally or professionally? And as you can imagine, very few hands go up. Um, generally, no hands go up. When I say change, that means change has been your friend for the last 15 years. There's no reason for you to be instinctively avoiding it or, or putting it off. Change, embrace change because change has been beneficial to you over these last 15 years. And the more you get of it in the future, the more uncomfortable you'll be and the more successful you'll be. I ain't even talking to those people. Let me tell you, Bob, I, I can't like, I mean, for, I, I see the younger advisors as the ones that are more open to this. I see the older, I mean, that's a generalization. I would say the more seasoned, the veterans, age doesn't necessarily correlate with that. But the people that have been in this for a while and are established, I think the established ones are, and some of them are, are actually the, some of the younger quote unquote thought leaders, it's hard for me to even dignify them with that moniker. But anyways, 
I do see some of them railing against these new age models, these like the flat fear. I mean, if I would say the biggest resistance isn't from the veterans, it's from the kind of mid-aged advisors that have kind of made it and they're trying to sell like these training programs. I mean, to the younger advisors, they want the younger generation to follow them and they're AUM all the way. Um, I, I think I think the older generations or the veterans, I, th- I think a lot of them find these conversations useful, but at the end of the day, I, I don't even know if this message is going to resonate with them. I don't know. I don't know if they actually can make the change, Bob. I don't mean to argue with you here, but I see the change in the industry coming from the up and coming advisors or the ones that are establishing or that are not that established. Because I think once you get established in the comfy AUM model, even if, even if you eventually do wind up having all your clients taken from you, I think for people to sit there now and be preventative is like telling somebody when they're healthy, like, don't eat that Twinkie, you know, well, it's like, well, what do I got to worry about? You know, I'm still healthy and I don't have diabetes yet. So I think there's a lot of that. Uh, Over my 40 year career in this business, I have proclaimed with great fanfare that change is coming and here's the direction it's coming in and it's inevitable. And I was right. Change, these changes are inevitable. The problem is I don't know when. And that's really the important issue. I don't know when. And, but, but sooner or later, in order to become a profession, we're going to have to have specializations. We're going to have to charge for advice. AUM is going to be an accommodation and people are going to be um, running professional, professionally managed advisory firms, very similar to what other professions do. Um, That's where it's it's going to go. I don't know when it's going to happen, but that's where it's going to go. 100%. I mean, if you look at Cody Garrett, Cody is a murderer. He is killing it. All right. He's absolutely just... I mean, people are lining up at the door. I mean, and the competitive forces will eventually create these changes. Um, they, I, they, they seem to be moving very slowly right now. But what in my in my experience, slow competitive advantages tend to accelerate at some point. And when they do, all of a sudden, boom, there's a big change in the profession. I mean, I have Rick Ferry on here. Rick Ferry has a wait list. Hourly advisor. Rick Ferry has a wait list. Like half a year long or something ridiculous like that. So, I mean, Bob, I totally see your point about the winds of change. I think there are advisors right now that are living this. Yeah, no question. Right. They are. I see professional advisors. I really do. I don't know when there's going to be a seismic shift. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if we're there yet as an industry. As knowing, a- knowing when is the key. And I don't think any of us know when. We know what, but we don't know when. Well, one of my theories, and I posted to my LinkedIn on this. If, if, if you're, you're all listening to this, if you're not following me on LinkedIn, just come on and follow me because I just like to post discussions. I rarely promote anymore. Like I don't publish, I don't like post about like my books or this or that. I post about industry discussions. I want to hear what people think. I want to hear what advisors think. I want to hear what even the consumers think. So I, I post polls and surveys and stuff. And I posted this thing last week about, I was on Target, on the Target website, because we're, we're quitting plastic in my family. 
And um, so I'm you when the one the two sources of plastic the most in your house are two areas the kitchen and the bathroom. All right, so I'm trying to stop buying shampoo bottles and conditioner bottles, right? So I'm trying to go natural and use these shampoo bars and conditioner bars. And I'm on the Target website trying to buy a conditioner bar. And I'm looking around and after I'm looking around for like 10 minutes, this chat bot comes up and says, would you like to talk to a beauty consultant? Beauty consultant, right. And so I was thinking. I think I might need one. What if... I'm on the Target website or I'm on the Amazon website looking to buy a, a car or a Rolex or something really expensive. And then a chat bot comes up and says, would you like to speak to a financial consultant? Yeah. Or if I'm buying a product that a new home buyer would buy. Yeah. Would you like to talk to a financial consultant? And then there's a financial planner on the other side of it. I, I have said years ago and, and consistently since then that I think most companies should replace at least one of their HR professionals with a financial planner. Pay them the same amount, but that financial planner would give much broader financial advice, limited, but better better advice about their company benefits and about what that means their financial picture than what they're getting now. But I think that that would be against their business model because it would discourage people from investing in the 401k. It may do that. Yeah, they might. They, they might say, you know, that you have better options. They might not. But I think the, the, the point of it is that there, there could be better stewardship of the financial assets of the employees of the company than, than what's being provided now. And I think that would be a great way for financial planners to leave college and get training with clients before they go out on their own. Oh yeah. I agree with you. All right. Now, Bob, I got to wrap here. Thanks so much for being on with me today. It's bobveras.com. Is that still your website? Yeah. Bob, bobveras.com and bob at bobveras.com is how to reach me. Okay. So inside information is his newsletter. If y'all are interested and everybody, please rate, subscribe, and review this show. And I will see you in the next one.